0: Good morning, everybody. It's great to see you this morning. My name is Craig Jarvis. I'm the lead pastor here at Village Church East. And uh, I do have, like, uh, I have a voice, but it's, it's not quite all there today. So I'll try not to preach too hard today, which will be a relief for you. Um, but today's message is, is uh, just very exciting. I want to share with you um, a little bit more about the, the series that we're working on uh, regarding uh, church. And to begin, I want to ask you this question. Here's a question I want to ask you. Have you ever walked into a family setting and just sensed that this is an unhealthy family setting? (laughs) You ever done that? I mean, nobody needs to tell you. You just kind of walk in, and uh, from from the behavior, some of the folks that you're around now, there's there's just a lack of respect. It's just uh, maybe not just in words and actions. Here's a picture of maybe... What that might look like that you uh, you become a little bit uh, aware that something's not right in this family vocal levels are higher uh appearance of the home or you just know something's off here and then you can't really wait until it's time to go right like when are we gonna be able to leave this place now sometimes it's well hidden sometimes uh sometimes there's some dysfunctional families and they hide it really well especially when when folks are over my mom uh, we didn't. I didn't grow up in a dysfunctional family, but my mom proved that this was something that that she was able to turn on and turn off really carefully. Because uh, my my brother and I were constantly getting into trouble, and my mom would be just yelling at us. What are you doing? What what normal person thinks this way? You know the normal the stuff you get from your from your mom, and then you know, she'd just be yelling at you. You're not my children. I don't love you. You know tough stuff like that. And then the phone rings and she picks up the phone it's like, I don't wanna hear any yelling at any, hi, hello, <laughs> who's, who's this, <laughs> oh, good to talk to you. She would change in an instant, right? So some people are good at hiding it, but, uh, but a lot of times people are really used to these dysfunctional families and it becomes very apparent that there's something wrong inside this family setting. And sadly, a lot of times it only takes one person uh, to disrespect their role or to not fulfill their role, work against the foundation of that family. And that kind of brings an overall atmosphere, a culture of dysfunction. Uh, now, here's another question. Have you ever been among a healthy family? If you walked into a home and you just go, this is, this is not bad. This, this is fun being here. There's something healthy about this family. Now, th- this might take a little longer to notice because you've got to get over the you know, maybe they're covering up the bad stuff kind of thing, but but there's something definite and uniquely friendly and welcoming about a healthy family. Now, healthy families don't always look the same either. They could look tremendously different in different idiosyncrasies and different values and things that they have, but there's always a few things that these families have in common, some fundamental values. Parents are unified, there's a respect shown, between the members of that family. The children obey and they respect their parents and uh, everybody plays their roles really well. Now, that's not to say that every family functions that way all the time, because they don't. You know, but, but when they don't, it's only a matter of time before they revert back to those comfortable, healthy roles. And that's what makes up a healthy family. Healthy families don't, don't remain healthy because they never drop the ball. They don't remain healthy because uh, everybody in the in the family plays their role all the time spectacularly, and they hit the ball out of the park every single day. Everybody has problems, but they revert back to that familiarity of respect and honor and love, and that's what makes up a healthy family. Can you hear my voice a little bit? I'll try and uh, try and preserve your ears in my voice. I won't won't get too too loud. It's not too long before you feel the health in a family. It's demonstrated, even celebrated. Uh, And when you're in a healthy family, you kind of look at it sometimes and you say, this is kind of like maybe we could adapt some of these traits in our own family. Healthy families have individual characteristics, but they have similar foundation traits. Um, For instance, Beth and I know several healthy families that we enjoy being around, and some of them have really unique characteristics. Um, we, we've been around families that they, they, they memorize scripture together. So they, they have a, a pattern of life where they, oh, thank you, where they constantly memorize scripture. Uh, we've been around families where they pray together all the time. They just, they just make sure that, uh, not just for dinners, but they make sure that they pray together. We've been around other families. They say, we're going to do devotions every single night before we go to bed. Um, some families that we've been around, they journal Journal um, what the Lord's doing in their lives on a regular basis. So all, all these health, all these different healthy families, they might have idiosyncrasies and characteristics that they do, and it doesn't mean that your family needs to n- n- needs to do devotions all the time. Well, that's a good thing. Or it doesn't mean that you, your family needs to do prayer journals all the time. Although that's a good thing. Um, but healthy families are not made up of these individual characteristic traits of that. They're made up of foundational. Uh, values that every single family that is healthy shares every family that is healthy is going to share some basic similarities if they are going to be identified as a healthy family now here's your third question how do you know if you're around a healthy church ah it's a good question isn't it because churches can act just like families in fact churches are kind of like families. They could cover up their dysfunction sometimes, but not for long. Eventually it'll come out. Some churches have unique characteristics about them, but every church that is healthy is gonna share some foundational healthy traits. Some churches are known to be strong on missions. Some churches are known to be strong on discipleship. You might have a different emphasis in each of these different churches, but. It doesn't mean that every healthy church is strong on mission, strong on discipleship, strong on giving, but those are individual characteristics. But if you're, they're going to be known as a healthy church, they're going to have similar foundational values. Um, even when we talked about last week, uh, the Jerusalem church, what they, had a char- they were a healthy church, and they were characteristically known for developing leaders, or the Macedonian church. They were, they were a healthy church that Paul was commending in the book of 2 Corinthians on a continual basis, especially 2 Corinthians chapter nine because they were a giving church. They were not rich, but they came together and they, they would pool their resources and give everything away to help those who were in need. And so these are healthy churches that were characteristically known for certain things, but those things didn't necessarily identify them and make them healthy. They were an offshoot of the healthy values they shared with other healthy churches. When the church began in the New Testament, there was different geographical locations, different ethnicities, different cultural values, different regions being, being uh, impacted for the gospel, different societal standings. There was different religions being converted. Everybody was coming from a different background. The church was brand new. It's hard for us to put our minds into this because churches to us are so normal. They're, so, they're on every uh, street corner. They were so used to this idea of church. But in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, the church is brand new. It's never been there before. And so this new church was growing, it was turning the world upside down, and it was known as Healthy. A healthy church that existed around Asia Minor, and it began to grow. More and more converts from more and more backgrounds were coming to know the Lord, and they were coming to be part of this church family. No matter their diversity, there were certain foundational characteristics that they always had in common. Now, over time, these characteristics began to be challenged these foundational truths, these foundational pillars, let's call them, of all these healthy churches that were turning the world upside down for Jesus Christ, these began to be picked away at. The evil one began challenging them. And he would get in through the people who were a part of the church. And so the church over time began to crumble. By the time you get to Revelation chapter two, you have God, this is 70 years after the church started. That's not a whole lot of time, but in 70 years, the church became so picked at, and they have crumbled so much, not in their characteristics. In fact, in Revelation chapter 2, a lot of them are commended for doing all the same stuff. Some of them were really identifying false teachers, and they were really holding to the truth, and God said, bravo, keep doing that. Uh, And some of them were doing a lot of ministry and reaching out and helping the poor, and God said, bravo, keep doing that. But they were losing their foundational values, the, the pillars that made them a healthy church. They kept doing the stuff, but they weren't doing it for the right reasons. And so by the time you get to Revelation chapter two, 70 years after the first church starts, God all of a sudden, out of seven churches, he says five of them are in deep trouble. And, he, and one of them, <laughs> Ephesus, he said, you know what? You guys are so far off the, off the mark, I'd rather you weren't even around. So, what are the foundational marks of a healthy church? What makes a church healthy foundationally? Not what we do. Not the characteristics, the, individual, the, the unique individual characteristics of a church. Not do we make good disciples or do we teach the gospel well. Or not, we're not talking about those things. We're talking about what are the foundational values of a church that makes it healthy. Well, I've narrowed it down to only a few. And the first one is healthy churches are heterogeneous. (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's a big word. It simply means they are diverse. Healthy churches have unity in the middle of diversity. They are one. Even though they are made up of a diverse group of people, healthy churches operate like one. They are one in mission, they are one in value, they overcome racial, cultural, and societal diversity. It doesn't matter if you're Canadian, or you're Italian, or you're American. It doesn't matter if you are rich or you're poor, it doesn't matter if you're a slave or you're free. In the New Testament, the church was made up of an eclectic group of people that were continually one. They were one in the direction that they were moving. And this I've researched and I'm gonna connect it in some pretty, hopefully, interesting ways to you. Jesus, before he ascended to heaven, he died on the cross, he rose from the dead, but before he would fulfill his ministry that way, he prayed. He prayed in John chapter 17. We call it the high priestly prayer. This is where Jesus prays for the church that he would inaugurate. And in this high priestly prayer, he prays for, I counted, I think about five or six main things that the truth would be present, that there would be love present, that there would be uni- unity in, among the brethren. There are five main things. But if you're to whittle down those five into even less, let me read you the passage of scripture. And I think the first one kind of bubbles to the surface. If we are to be a group, a a, a church that is healthy, made up of people from all different backgrounds, Jesus prayed that we would be one. This is his prayer. John 17, verse 11, I am no longer in the world, Jesus prays, but they are in the world. Those are his disciples. And I am coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given to me, that they may be, what church? That they may be one, even as we are one. Who's he talking about we there? the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In other words, the oneness that a healthy church is supposed to have should look just like the oneness in the Trinity. Now when has Jesus ever disagreed with the Father? When does the Father ever disagree with the Holy Spirit? (laughs) It doesn't happen. There is a unity that exists there that, that Jesus prays would be exhibited and mirrored in his church. Now look down a little further in verse 20, same chapter. Jesus says, I do not ask for these only. That's his present disciples. But get this, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that's us. That they may be, what church? That they may all be one just as you Father are in me and I in you and also that they may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. It is a foundational characteristic of a healthy church that they operate as one, a oneness that almost looks like the Trinity because without that, nobody is going to believe that Jesus came from the Father, that Jesus is the Son of God, and that Jesus has the power to die on the cross and forgive us of our sins, Nobody's going to buy the gospel if we, we church, are not one. Amen. Isn't that crazy? The oneness in the church was supposed to be exhibited in a very unique way. And when the church started in the book of Acts, guess what they had? They had incredible oneness. You can read about it in Acts chapter 2. The passage that Shannon introduced to us this morning, this is the first time we have a show, a a demonstration of what the early church was doing. Look in Acts 2 and verse 44. All who believed were together and had all things in common. Uh, does does, Does that scream diversity operating as unity or does that scream diversity as everybody's an individual and it's every man for himself? There looks to be some pretty big unity in this passage of scripture. Acts chapter two, this whole passage is full of unity but these words are powerful. All who believed were together and they had all things in common. Not that they all did the same things. Not that they all, all these different churches had the same Uh, Passion for discipleship, or had the same passion for missions, or had the same passion for generosity. It doesn't mean that. It means they had all things in common, meaning that they had the same goals, they had the same mission, and they had the same passion for Jesus Christ. They were one because they were one going forward together for the gospel. How is that possible? Well, if you're gonna work together with that kind of oneness, it's only possible if you exhibit one very important character in your life. You will never operate with oneness with anybody if you are not able to get this characteristic out of you and demonstrate it on a regular basis. You know what the characteristic is? Love. It involves everything you guys said. Selflessness, humility, it involves all of that. But love covers that and more. This oneness that they needed to have had to be exhibited in an attitude of love where they put other people, other things more important than themselves. Acts 2, 45, the very next verse. And they were, because they were one, They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. (laughs) What was more important to these folks, people or stuff? And they didn't have a lot of stuff to begin with. It was obvious that they loved folks. They were more attached to people than they were attached to things. Now for us in the American culture, this is a very difficult screw to get out of our head because we are built with this idea that I am my stuff. If I lose my stuff, I'm not me anymore. But in reality, that has nothing that's good, that's pagan consumerism because in reality, you are not the culmination of your stuff. You are, you are image of God and you are meant to love other people because they are image of God. Now this is not communism. If you're thinking to yourself, well this sounds like communism, and I've heard this verse used to back up communism before. Here's the difference. Communism is based on leadership structures that force equality through distribution of personal items. Right? The difference is love is voluntary sacrifice for the needs of somebody else. This is the furthest thing from communism in the world because this is me voluntarily giving up something I love because I love somebody more than that. Everyone was doing this without being asked. (laughs) Nobody stood up front and said, let's see, Jerry, you got a lot of stuff. Why don't you go sell your stuff? Because Sally has a big need over here. And none of us have as much stuff as you do. And you know it, Jerry. So sell your stuff and help out Sally. There's none of that going on, right? That's what the government does. In the church, we say, Sally has a need. Can anyone help? And everybody's hands go up. Why? Because we love Sally more than our stuff. It's totally different. They prioritize love. Listen, they clearly love the Lord, right? oh, we all love Jesus, right? That's Okay, we clearly love the Lord, but they chose to love each other. And that's the difference. They chose to obey the Lord's command to love. John 13, 34, they took this personally. A new command Jesus says I give to you, that you love one another. How should we love one another, church? What is our bar of how much we should love one another? Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. Why, what's writing on this? By this all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have this kind, this same, this love, one for another. This is a command given to the church. This is our command, church. That we prioritize our lives, get the screws out of our head that tell us we love our stuff. We use our stuff, we love people, we don't use people and love our stuff. And if your stuff can be used to love people, you should really use it that way. In the Old Testament, the command was, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength. Jesus reminded, they said, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus said, you already know what it is, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength. Jesus extends this kind of love. He busts open the wall, and he says, you've heard that Old Testament stuff? Love, Lord, you God with all your heart, soul, soul, And then Jesus says, no, 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 no. Read the first three words for me, church. What does it say? How is loving a new commandment? I thought this was like, everybody knows this. Why would Jesus call this a new commandment? Well, in the Old Testament, if you didn't love somebody, you stole their stuff, broke their stuff, hurt their stuff, then you needed to pay them back. The law told you how to pay them back. You pay them back twice, you pay them back three times, you pay them back four times. That's just how the law told you. If you don't don't love them too bad, the law says you gotta give it back to them. That's what the law says. That's fair. But in the New Testament, it's not like that. In the New Testament, this is a God kind of love. If you offend somebody, the prescription is to humble yourself to the extent it takes to win them back. And if that takes giving up your stuff or giving up your time or sacrificing for somebody else, that's what you do, why? Because that's what Jesus did. And that's the new commandment he gives us. The new commandment is don't love because the law tells you to love. The new commandment is love like I love. How hard is that on a scale of one to 10? That's hard, isn't it? This is a God kind of love. Jesus goes on to pray in John 17 in his high priestly prayer. I have made known to them your name, Jesus praying to the Father. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Do you understand his high priestly prayer for us, the church, is that we would love each other like he loves us. And how much did Jesus love us? Now this is love. Not that we loved him, but that he loved us and gave his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Listen, this is not a law-driven relationship that we have in the church. These are love-driven relationships. And that's key. Any healthy church that you go in, they may, have, they may make music their priority, they may make giving their priority, they may make, make missions their priority, they may make families their priority. They make a couple of different priorities, and that's, and that's fine and good, and each church is unique. But if they're a healthy church, they will make love their priority. You can't have a healthy church without having love. This new command becomes inclusive to all people. It goes beyond preferences like hobbies or skin color. This becomes a foundational cultural distinctive for every healthy church. And here's how it happened. When we get to Acts chapter two and we read about it, I'm gonna attempt some of these names, but the first church was gathered and you have people from all kinds of different regions from the east, from the west, from the north, and from the south, and they were all gathered together because they'd heard about the gospel, and now Peter was going to explain it to them, and they'd heard about Peter, and they come from miles around, and they're all together in one place, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Perga, and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. This is the opening of the doors for the very first time to the concept of church. They're gathered together. Nobody understands each other and God removes the curse of Babel. We talked about this last week. He overcomes the curse of Babel and he gives them a miracle a tongue that everybody can understand. And and please understand that this is not some heavenly tongue that you may have heard about. This is language, these are languages. And and what happens is when, when, when you were gathered, if you spoke one of these different, if you were Egyptian or Mesopotamian or Jewish or proselyte or Arabian, you're gathered there and you begin to hear the gospel said in your own tongue, in your own language. And you're thinking to yourself, how is this even possible? And they asked the question, how is this possible? We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And Peter said, this this isn't a mistake. This This is not some weird chance of fate. These men are not drunk, he said, like you're accusing them of being. You're understanding in your own language because the church is being born. And the church is being born of all races, backgrounds, cultures that the church would ever be racist would be the thing so far from God's mind. I'll give you one more illustration. Cornelius was a Roman centurion. That means he was in charge of a 100 Roman troops. He was quite a powerful man, but this man, Cornelius, heard about Peter. He heard about this message of the gospel and he was inquisitive. I think he really wanted to accept Christ. Now, one thing this Roman soldier knew is that Jews hated Romans. And the other thing the Roman soldier knew, this Cornelius knew is Romans didn't care much for Jews either. You remember Herod? Herod hated these guys. Romans did not like the Jews. They were rabble-rousers. And they didn't even want to even be in Jerusalem. If you were mean to the Caesar, you got put in Jerusalem in Israel. Nobody wanted to go there. So, Cornelius is this Roman centurion. Hears about the gospel, hears about Jesus, and arranges a meeting with Peter. Look at the language he uses when he meets with Peter. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. Uh Uh-oh, that's a mistake, right? Peter lifted him up saying, stand up, I'm just a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many other persons gathered. And he said to them, you know yourselves how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or even to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me, Peter says, that I should not call any person common or unclean. Peter was racist. And Peter said, the church has been born. The church has been started and God has told me I'm not allowed to have any of those old bags anymore. And so he gets rid of them. And Cornelius falls at his feet. And I can imagine, can you imagine what Peter would want to do to this Roman centurion? You know, you, know? you should worship me. Look what you did to my people. Look what you did to my home, homeland. Took us into captivity. But Peter answers with this incredible love. He lifts him up, he says, dude, you're not allowed to worship humans and I'm just one. We worship Jesus Christ. And that same Jesus has told me, I'm not allowed to hold anything against you. We're brothers. So here's the gospel. Let's be family. That's powerful, right? Every healthy church has that in their foundational pillar. Everyone has a place in the seat next to you. Everyone. In our culture, what would that look like? Well, we don't have Parthenians and we don't have... Uh, uh, well, we might have some Arabians, but we don't have a lot of those other names in in that list of names that are coming into church, right? But who do we have? Would somebody from the street be welcome to sit in the chair next to you? Would a druggie be used, would be welcome to sit? Would you go over and sit with them? Would a transvestite be welcome to sit in the chair next to you? Yeah, Yeah. it's it's an interesting world in which we live and yet we face the same challenges that peter did in his world but the church is known for their love it is how people will know we are jesus disciples we are not heterogeneous in our i'm sorry we are heterogeneous in our appearance but we are homogeneous in our faith do you know the difference between the two our appearance is eclectic but our belief is one. That's why we want to replicate, not assimilate. We don't wanna assimilate all these different cultures and backgrounds and religions and faiths and beliefs. We are here to worship Jesus Christ. We are here to replicate worshipers of Jesus Christ, not to assimilate and figure out what we all have in common. Because quite frankly, if you believe that Jesus is not the Son of God, there's no room for you in the Gospel story. You must believe, first of all, that Jesus is who he says he is, that God has given testimony of the Son, 1 John 4, and that all who believe in him have eternal life. We want to replicate, not assimilate. We want to replicate our faith in Jesus to others. We do not change to accommodate new belief systems into Christianity. All right, so that's love. What's the second one? Well, the second one actually falls under love, but it is so powerful it needs a category all its own. Healthy church culture hinges on humble. Healthy church culture hinges on humble. Leaders lead in a healthy church from the bottom up. Not bottoms up, but from the bottom up. The best leaders in the church are proven to be the best servants. Uh, Jesus gave us this example as well in John chapter 13. If I then... Your Lord and teacher, after he has washed the feet of the disciples in the upper room, he says, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Whose feet was Jesus washing in the upper room? And who were the founders of the New Testament church? The The disciples. These are the head honchos of the New Testament church. If you were part of the church, these were your... R.C. Sprouls, or your, I don't know, give me a name, John MacArthur, or your, you know, Ravi Zachary. These were the guys. And Jesus is washing their feet, and he says to them, not to the other people that they would lead, he says to them, if I have done this for you, you do it for each other, and you do it for the people that you serve. These guys are supposed to wash feet. That means the church is to hinge on humble They can't be the only ones who serve, they must equip other believers who serve and who become servants themselves. And so, humility needs to characterize our congregation. If you're in a church that you think is healthy, humility needs to be a characteristic pillar of that church. We'll do a case study, Acts 6. Acts 6, there was a problem. Churches, there are going to be problems. Acts 6, there was a problem, and the problem was women were bickering with one another, to be quite honest with you. In Acts 6, there was a situation that could have turned into a mess really fast, and I want to examine it with you because there is a characteristic that comes out of Acts 6 that is not highlighted in the text but is absolutely all over the words and characterizes a story. Acts 6 verse one, now in those days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because the widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. So what's happening is these Greeks were accepting Christ as their savior. They were becoming Christians, Christ followers. The Hebrews were accepting Christ as their savior. They were becoming Christians and leaving their belief that the Messiah was yet to come behind. Now they get together and they were sharing all things as they had in common. We already heard about that. One of the things they did was they had these love feasts all the time and they were bringing in food for each other and whatever was left over or even sometimes extra food was brought in and it was brought in for the people that didn't have a whole lot. And so they would give the food to widows, especially, Romans did not take care of widows or orphans. They didn't have anything in the government that would do that, unlike we do today. So they would, uh, we, we have some, you know, social security and things like that. They had nothing, none of that. So if you're a widow who had no children or, or nobody to take care of you, you were on your own. So the church said, we can't let that happen because we love people more than we love stuff. So they said, let's bring our stuff in and help these people. And so they brought in all their stuff and they started distributing it to all of the different people. Over time, they found that they were helping out the Jewish widows and the Jewish families in need more than the Greek. Why? Because Jesus was a Jew, you know? Because, I don't know, maybe they were louder. Maybe they complained more. Maybe they needed more. I don't know what the situation was, but it was happening. And so the Hellenists, the Greeks, got a little angry, And they said, listen, we're not getting the kind of food that these people are getting. What's the deal? You love them more than you love us? And so there arose a dissent. So the leadership listens to the complaints, and they begin to put together a response. Let's walk through it. They found that communication was not a threatening situation. Complaining was not a threatening situation. They didn't let their emotions draw them away. They listened to the complaints, and they said, let's come up with a solution. Also, they saw it as their responsibility to evaluate and clarify what everyone was supposed to be doing. It was the leadership's responsibility to be able to say, yeah, you you know what? You're right there. These people are getting more. These people are getting less. Why is that happening? Let's evaluate and figure it out. And so they involved more people. Look in Acts 6, verse 2. The 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God in order to serve tables. Leaders were listening to the complaints, but the people were uh, humble enough to allow leaders to do their jobs and also get involved with finding a solution. Everybody is demonstrating humility here. Uh, The reason this comes up is because when, when I look at this, the 12 summon the full number of disciples, it's almost like well, these are much more than the 12 now. These are group, This is a group, large group that's called together and they said, okay, we need to come up with a solution. And you gotta think that there's tons of solutions being given, right? But instead of, instead of taking all those solutions, which you can't possibly, somebody's gonna have to say, okay, Jerry has the best idea, we're gonna go with that. How does that make all the rest of the people feel when, when somebody does it? When one of the leaders said, you know, Jerry's got the best idea, let's go with that. How does everybody else feel? Oh, come on. Yeah, <laughs> what's wrong with my suggestion? I had a good suggestion. But you don't see any of that. You don't see any of that in this story. It's like, Jerry has a better suggestion. What do you think of that? Yeah, Jerry does have a good suggestion. Let's do what Jerry says. Leadership came up with a solution and plotted a course where more people then could use their gifts together. Next verse, therefore brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, and we will appoint them to to this duty. The leaders were so lazy, they didn't even do it themselves. Yeah, the leaders looked at the, the people and they said, okay, you guys know these churches better than we do. You know these, these areas better than we do. So uh, why don't you guys pick seven people from among you you know to be full of the Spirit. Let's give this job to them. And nobody said, you're lazy. <laughs> nobody said that. They said, okay, yeah, let's use our gifts and figure it out. Uh, that's, uh, that's gotta be uh, Harry. Harry's good, everybody ends in a Y. Uh, <laughs> Harry, Harry's good at that, let's, let's pick him. Until so the people get involved with it. And there's no bickering, and there's no complaining. And the only way that's possible is there's a lot of humility. The only reason this could ever happen is if, is it, all it needs one person to stand up and say, Harry's an idiot and I don't think his idea is good, and I think all of you are off, and I think my idea is the best, but nobody did that. Instead, everybody said, yeah, we we can work together and find a solution. The leaders begin the ball rolling, and everybody falls into their right places. And the only way that's possible is there has to be an enormous amount of humility. The leaders have also been doing their job. They've been equipping the saints so that people can see their growth. So in these churches, evidence of the Lord in their lives was being demonstrated. That means they were already serving. They were already doing things so that everybody could say, you know what, Harry wouldn't be good at that, but Jerry would be good at that. Yeah, Jerry, Harry, and Sally. So, this is demonstrative of a a healthy church where the leadership is allowed to do their jobs the congregation falls into line and they're allowed to use their gifts. The congregation is allowed to participate to say who does what and where they would go and everybody is so full of humility that nobody stands up and says, I don't like the direction this is going and I'm gonna use this forum to voice my opinion. Because at the foot of that kind of an attitude is P-R-I-D-E and it'll kill a church. It'll kill a church. Not even the leaders were full of pride. They were serving their people. They were elders called to be shepherds of the church. And by the way, this is where the whole idea of deacons comes out of Acts chapter 6. And by the time you get to 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1, you have qualifications for choosing elders and qualifications for choosing deacons. A church has elders and deacons. Deacons are not elders, and elders are not deacons. They are two separate offices. Elders are commissioned to keep the most important things in front of the people so that the church is doing what they need to be doing at the first and foremost is prayer, Amen. communion, and baptism. That's why they said in verse 4, the leader said in Acts 6, 4, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Why? Because the leaders knew this is what they had to, This is what their job was. And the people knew that's what their job was. So What? Churches are distinct in culture, but if they are healthy, they have these fundamental values. They are heterogeneous. In other words, they have unity, no matter how eclectic they are, they have unity in love. Healthy churches fight for this. Number two, they have humility. From leadership to members, there's humility constantly demonstrated. That means that healthy churches surrender to each other and they don't go home and fume. They surrender to one another because, remember the first one, they love each other more than they love stuff. And number three, they are hungry. They are hungry to see more people to come to Jesus because everything that Jesus says about the church is meant to be replicated in the lives of more people. Jesus said, love so that others can see your love. He said, serve so that others can see your service. He says, do good works so that others may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. He said, the health of the world is dependent on the health of the church. And if the world doesn't see the health of the church, the world goes to hell. That's how much is riding on it. That's why the last one is so essential. A healthy church is hungry to see more people come to Jesus. If your pride is getting in the way of a healthy church, you've lost your hunger to see people come to know Jesus. Healthy churches expect this and they pray for it. Michael came up with a great phrase and I wanna throw it up here for you. This is powerful. A healthy church culture is felt fought for, and fragile. Much like a healthy family culture, (laughs) it is felt, fought for, and fragile. It only takes one member to falter, and leadership to not hold them accountable to begin a process of degradation that will start weakening the culture of a healthy church. Let me say that one more time. It only takes one member to falter, and leadership that will not hold them accountable to begin a process of degradation that will start to weaken that healthy church. Ephesus was a healthy church. When Ephesians was written, Paul used the whole first chapter to give some incredibly deep theology in his letter to the church at Ephesus. And then he bragged on them. Oh my goodness. Look in uh, Ephesians 1.15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Do you get that? Their faith was renowned. Paul didn't ask about them. Their faith was so powerful, Paul heard about it. Like, Like conversation over dinner. And Paul would be sitting with his buddies and they would say, have you heard what's going on at Ephesus? Have you heard the kind of faith these people have? Have you heard the way that they love each other at Ephesus? Paul writes to them and he says, I I, have been asked you about this, I've heard about it. Everyone's talking about it. It is powerful. Their love toward all the saints was profound. And 40 years after this letter was written, in Revelation chapter two, John, through the power of the Holy Spirit, writes to the church. God writes to this church. And he says, you know what? You have lost your love. Your first love for me. You do all the same stuff. You've been doing it for years. But there's no passion behind it because you love your stuff, you love your ministries more than you love me. And because of that, I'm good without you. He said, I'd rather you just not be around. How would you like that for God to say about your church? 40 years. They go from a faith and a love that Paul just hears about in circles to God saying, ah, you're done. Let's get rid of you. Ephesus repented. Did you know that? They repented and God used them incredibly for the next at least 30 years after Revelation chapter 2. I read a book called The Deceased Church by Tom Rayner. And he says, how do you know that you're in a, a church that is dying or dead? Here's a couple of the things that he said. They're, they're common, like in a healthy church, there's common, common things. Well, in a dead church or in a dying church, there's common things as well. He says here, he gave 11. I whittled them down to nine because I don't want to bore you, but... Number one, the church refused to look like or get involved in the community around them. Number two, conversations were constantly about two things, how to fill the pew and how to get more money. Number three, pastoral tenure became shorter and shorter. Pastors stayed less and less time. Number four, meetings were battles about what members wanted, stuff rather than people. Number five, there was no evangelistic emphasis. Number six, the church rarely prayed together. Number seven, there was no agreed upon goals, no agreement on mission, vision, or purpose. Number eight, the mis- members idolati- idolati- idolized another era. Did I mention I was with the kids all week in VBS? I'm doing surprisingly well, just so you know, here, here today. Members idolized another era. Their memories always pointed to the past and not to the future. And number nine, facilities, deteriorated and no one really noticed listen decline is not an event it's a process i'll say that one more time decline is not an event it's a process and health is not a destination it's a trajectory so if a healthy church is going to be healthy we need to be on that trajectory we don't arrive ever but we stay on that trajectory at Village Church, I wanna to highlight to you some of the values that we have as a church, and I think these values make us healthy. And just so you know, a Village Church East values these just like every other Village Church that we, Lord willing, are going to plant in the next few years. We're not trying to be like other churches. We don't wanna be other churches. We don't want people from other churches. You, you go to the grocery store, get the groceries off the shelf. You don't go to somebody else's cart and take them out of somebody else's cart. Our goal as a church is not to grow by getting people from other churches. Our goal as a church is to turn Carol Stream upside down for the kingdom of God. There are people going to hell all around us. Our goal is not to get more people in the pew. It's to get people to know Christ, to love him, so that we can learn to love one another and we can replicate like we should be doing. Here are some values we have at church. We are a team building church. That means that we are collaborative. We work together. That means that we are evaluating You cannot have a team building church in its truest form unless you have an evaluating church. That means that if you take on a ministry, you're going to sit down with the head of that ministry and they're going to say to you, you kind of dropped the ball. And you're going to have to sit there and you're going to go, your first response is going to be, I don't drop the ball. Craig drops the ball. Or somebody else above me drops the ball. I didn't have enough money. I didn't have enough personnel. I didn't have what I needed. Oh, you're, you're, gonna, you're gonna want to make up all kinds of excuses, but in a church that's healthy, the first thing that comes out of us is humility. We say, what do you mean by that? What do, what do I need to do better? Give me some ideas. And a church that is healthy is team building, and they do it in a healthy way. That means that we are evaluating. There are no emotions attached to evaluations, and there's no ministry that may not get hacked tomorrow because we love people, not ministries. We love people, not stuff. I've been in meetings where I've given a suggestion, not here at Village, <laughs> but I've given a suggestion. I said, uh, what if we didn't do Awana next year? And it was like a silent bomb went off in the meeting. Not do Awana? Well, that's terrible. We'll never, no, I'm never gonna know. That's, that's a worse, thing. Uh, no, we could do something else. We're, we, we're still gonna minister to kids. But we love people, not ministries. We're a digital church, number two. That means that we wanna be committed to staying up with culture. So that's why I I do podcasts every now and then. That's why we try and make things look like they need to look and we get them online as fast as possible. That's why when we do a VBS, you see it in the church on Sunday. We wanna make sure that we we are current and we are digitally connected. Number three, we're a family church. Village Church is a loyal family. We are loyal to one another. We treat each other like family. Can I give you an illustration of this? Can I give the illustration from yesterday? <laughs> so yesterday, it was my first upgrade class. We've changed the word and we had more people show up. So I was kind of excited about that. We had a class at my house at 10 o'clock. We had some people show up and we were ready to, I had studied, we had, we had the handouts, we were ready to go. And then I get a, a little text from one of our own, Mindy. And, <laughs> and uh, she said, Craig I got a flat tire. I'm on my way on my way over, but I got a flat tire. I don't know what to do. And my first response was, "Mindy, you just have to take care of it yourself because I got to teach a class. It's a ministry that I'm doing. So just hold your horses, and we'll we'll give you some help as soon as possible. Right? No. My first response was, "Mindy's in trouble. All right, everything goes on hold." You guys talk amongst yourselves, me and another guy, we got in a car and we drove down and we changed Mindy's tire, really fast by the way. Should have timed ourselves, we changed it fast. And she came over and we didn't even have time to do the lesson, but we just had a good time together. Why do we do that? Because we are more interested in the family than we are in our projects. We're more interested in, in loving one another than loving our stuff and loving our ministries. We're an authentic family. When one of us crumbles, we all carry the pain. And I've seen that happen way too many times. And I, I, I hope I see it a lot more, but in a way I hope I don't see it as much. There's been a lot of crumbling in our church. A lot of pain. And you guys do really well at gathering the wagons and giving support. That's good. We could do better. Number four, we are a servant-led church. We have inverted leadership. If you look at our leadership structure, you will see the elders at the bottom of the page. The reason is because the weight of the church is on the shoulders of the the leaders. And we work from the bottom up. If if we want feet washed, we start. You know what I did at VBS, by the way, this week? I didn't get to teach one class. I'm an extremely good teacher, and I didn't get to teach one class. They really overlooked my gifts. (laughs) You know what I got to do this past week? I got to lead games. and it was a blast. I had so much fun leading the games. This is why I have no voice. It was great. I got to yell at the kids all week long. It was wonderful. The kids had a blast, I had a blast. But we're a servant-led church. There is no job that a leader should or would not do. Number five, we are a what-if church. Do you know what that, I love that one. That simply means, what if we did something different? What if we tried something that's beyond our abilities? What if we had a concert and invited all the churches in our area to come to the concert? What if we did that? What would God do? We are a what if church. Oh, we're too small to do that. (laughs) Think big. Number six, we are a so what church. That's why every message ends with so what. How does this impact us? Village Church directly challenges culture's lies. In other words, everything we teach on Sunday, everything we teach in our groups, everything we teach the kids is meant to ingrain the truth into them so that they can go back into the world and the world can give them more lies and they can easily say, that's not what God wants. And if we don't do the so what, they'll never learn how to do that. I, I could teach you this lesson, but if I don't put it together with the so what, you're not gonna be able to put it into motion when you get out into the world. We are not a better than church we are not a better than church this is just who we are this doesn't mean we're better than other churches we don't want to be better than other churches we want to be the kind of church Jesus wants us to be it's a matter of fitting into the family and that's why that's why you may come to people may come to our church and they may not, they may go ah oh, this isn't this isn't for me that's fine but go to an evangelical church that is Make sure you're worshiping with a group of people every Sunday. Find a healthy church, because what is your family, what are you gonna do without a healthy church? What are you gonna do when the world crumbles around you? Wouldn't you love for somebody to say, you know what, my lesson's not as important, let's get in the car and go fix your tire for you." (laughs) Wouldn't that be good? Not patting myself on the back, but I'm just saying, that's that's who we are. We fight for it. You don't have to be the church you're visiting. You may feel comfortable in that church But you don't have to be that church, but you do have to have these foundational truths in order to be in a healthy church. All right. All right, that's all I'm going to do. I got more notes, but I know I just kept going and going and going, but that's all I'm going to do. Part of the culture that's going on for us right now is God is pushing us into some areas. And uh, I wanna make one of those known to you uh, right now. I wrote you an email this week. Did you all get my email? If you didn't get my email, make sure that you write your email on that card. Update your email and we will make sure that we we get you the newsletter and the emails that I'm sending out every now and then. I sent out an email this week. If you didn't get it, it simply said, the Lord is driving us to our knees. Uh, We are a small church doing big things. We are a small church with healthy people. We have humility that is running through this congregation to the point where I've had some pretty intimate, hard conversations with several of you and your response is not, "Uh, you don't have any right to say that, but your response is, is, is done well in humility. We are demonstrating that we love people and not things and that's good even the kids coming in right now that are interrupting in the middle of my spiel. We love kids, even you, more than getting through the message. But one thing that the Lord is really showing us these days is that we need to pray more. We need to pray more because what's happening is every time a church moves toward health, they get the attention of the evil one. The evil one does not mind churches. He minds healthy churches. He didn't care if there's a church on every corner as long as they're bickering with one another. In fact, that's really a wonderful playground for him to be on. But a church that is healthy, loving one another, and demonstrating regular humility, that's a threat. And that's what's happening to our brand new year and a half old church. A lot of you are thinking, even now, of ways that you've been attacked recently Um, health-wise, financially, um, the the integrity of your family unit. Um, There are are onslaughts of the evil one going on in all different categories of every one of our lives, and we're not that big. So it's really a unique thing, and I've noticed it. And so what I would like to do is I'd really want to finish this message by encouraging us to pray more. The armor of God is given to us, helmet of salvation, breastplate of righteousness, sword of the spirit, you know them all, shield of faith, and so on, and so on, and so on. But prayer is not a piece of the armor you put on. Prayer bathes all the armor and makes it strong. And if we are not praying regularly, we may have the armor, but the battles seem more fierce because our armor is not strong. So I want to encourage you individually, as family units, Pray more. Pray when you get up. Pray during the day. Pray before you go to bed at night. Pray with your children. Pray out loud. That's powerful. Pray. In fact, the Bible says pray without ceasing. So if you feel like you're under attack, pray. Uh, one prayer request I want to give you is, uh, right now is for the muleys. Their garage burned down and they're having a heck of a time with the insurance company trying to get uh, trying to get their, their lives back on their feet. And, and they're under attack, and we need to pray for them. We need to pray for one another. We need to pray, we need to pray for, for our kids. We need to pray for our community. We need to pray for our mayor. Wasn't it great that he stayed for the whole, the whole thing? He was supposed to go back to a, a party and end up staying for the whole thing. It was great, but we need to be praying for our, our leaders in the community. Pray all the time. In fact... This has become so heavy on your pastor's heart that um, I've noticed the Lord move in some ways next Sunday where it seems like he's leading us to have a prayer service. So next Sunday, uh, I'm meeting this week to put this together, but next Sunday we are going to have a service centered around prayer. My hope is that all of you will come, that, that our regular attenders will hopefully be back as well, that will fill this room, and we will just fill it not with people, but we'll fill it with prayer. We're, we're just gonna pray. And, and you're gonna get a chance to pray, you're gonna get a chance to hear people pray. Uh, we're not gonna make you feel uncomfortable, I promise, promise that I won't make you feel uncomfortable. You may be stretched a little bit, but you won't be uncomfortable. But my goal is that the, the roof of this room would be lifted with the prayers of God's people next Sunday and we're gonna worship, and we're gonna do communion, and we're gonna call it a day. But um, we're gonna dedicate the whole thing to prayer. I I am gonna be in Korea, so please pray for me. Uh, I'm gonna be ministering to a youth camp. Actually, I'm preaching next Sunday in a large church, and then I'm doing a service at a youth camp, and I don't speak a lick of Korean. So if you could help me by praying for me, that would be wonderful too. I'm gonna be working with my interpreters, pray for them, that I don't talk too fast. Uh, and pray for the kids. We've already got 65 teens signed up for this camp. And, uh, and the, Katie, the person that I'm working with to put this together said most of them, like 90% of them are not believers. And so I'm gonna be sharing the gospel with kids that have never heard the gospel before in their lives. So again, doors flying open for us being able to change our world from this little church. But we need to pray, we need to pray. So I I hope you're excited about next Sunday. I am. I'm going to really miss being with you, but um, I'll, I'll covet your prayers.